And when you look at it, you consider it, they are difficult. It talks about people doing things that are outside of our ethics for today, at least for the most part. If you're political, it may not be, but for the average run, these are things that you do not do that are happening here within this text. And so, as I prepared to look at this, I look at the text over and over and over again, trying to make sense of it. Once I get to a point where I have an idea of what it's saying, I will go to what other people have written on it. I'll go to commentaries. I've read this week over 16 writers on this text, and every single one of them said, this is a hard text. We don't know how to interpret it, but we'll give a try. And each one came up with a different type of interpretation of the text. Can you imagine that? So we have something interesting to look at. Have you ever gone to Scripture on your own and you've wondered, what is that all about? This is one of those texts. And next week will be a lot better, but still problematic. We'll look at the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Rich man, poor man. In the same chapter, I invite you to read it ahead next week before our service next Sabbath. So here in this text is a problem. Now, if you look what I've given to you on paper, you see I've given you a little bit of what is said in chapter 15. Last week, our story opened up what Jesus says for the next two chapters. But bracketing this text are the opening statement where it says that tax collectors and sinners were coming to listen to Jesus and the Pharisees and scribes were grumbling and saying, this fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. The parables that followed showed Jesus' intent of what happens when something is lost. The shepherd goes looking for the sheep that's lost. The woman goes through the home looking for um, a coin that is lost. There's a story of a prodigal who went lost. The father doesn't go looking for him, but when the son comes back and they celebrate, he goes looking for the elder son who is lost. He's lost at home, seeking to bring him back into the covenant of grace. And then Jesus, it says in 16, speaks to the disciples. It's interesting in these road stories that begin, as I told you last week, in chapter 9, all the way through to uh, Jesus coming to Jerusalem. He's in the Galilees. He's going from place to place. He's teaching. Sometimes it says what he's teaching is for the people. Other times it is for the disciples. And so you'll see for the people, to the disciples, for the people, to the disciples. And here... The opening teaching was to the people, the Pharisees were complaining, and now Jesus turns to the disciples. And it's right there, Jesus said to the disciples. Now there were others surrounding Jesus, listening to what Jesus said, but this was to the disciples, which I think is interesting in and of itself. 
And then if you look down on the back side of the page, you see where it somewhat ends and encapsulate these words. After Jesus said these words that we saw and heard in our scripture lesson, the Pharisees, who were there, listening in, who were lovers of money, he's talking about issues with money in this section, heard all this, and they ridiculed him. So there is a thing between Jesus and the Pharisees in this section. And I personally feel that the teachings that you find here are directing to those who grumble and ridicule our Christ and ridicule Christianity. Now, one other thing before we go into the parable itself. You see on the back it looks kind of different. And let me tell you what many think happens, and this is possible. Uh, Luke, if you look at his introduction, said, um, um, writing to Theophilus, says, oh, Theophilus, I'm writing a gospel of our Lord and Jesus Christ, and I'm really taking liberties at paraphrasing this. He says, I want you to know that I'm writing this because what is written seems inadequate, and I feel I can do better. And so as these pieces come together that form the gospel, they come from various sources, and they're put in place in a sequential way. It is not a history, but it is a clear communication of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ in this world and bringing together those experiences that took place those three and a half years in Palestine that serve us to bring us in a rightful place with God. It's not a history. It's a gospel that is built to serve us so that we may find Jesus. And when you read the gospel, read it looking for Jesus indeed. So Luke tells this parable, struggles with it a bit in the telling of it, and then he says, well, we need to help out what has happened here and bring some sayings of Jesus from various sources. Some sound like they could come from the Sermon on the Mount and puts them there to give a little balance to what is said. There are three sayings, and if you notice in the right-hand column, I have some letters. You see an A, B, and then an A with an apostrophe and a B with an apostrophe. This is Hebrew poetry. Poetry did not rhyme. It may have had a meter, but it related with each other by phrases that were the same, and they repeated. The first one goes A, B, A, B. The next one, A, B, C, A, B, C. The third one, which is more interesting, goes A, B, C, C, B, A. And listen here. You can hear some of the poetry. No slave can serve two masters. That A matches the A at the end. You cannot serve God and wealth. Two masters, God and wealth. The second one, for slaves will either hate one and the bead below and despise the other or love the other in the sea and devote it to the one. 
Now there's poetry. I'd suggest you begin looking for things that seem to repeat itself in Scripture. But this is there to kind of give a semblance of a balance to the parable that was said that may have even been difficult for Luke. Luke is the only one that tells this story, by the way. Matthew, Mark, and John, of course John is totally different, do not tell this particular story. And it is told within the context of the society of that particular period. Now this is village life that you see here. You have a rich man, kind of an absentee landlord, who has hired a manager who is in the village to supervise the property that he owns that is let out to sharecroppers. You follow that? The sharecroppers are responsible to pay rent and a portion of what they grow. So in good years, the portion that they pay is good and easy. In difficult years, they live on the edge. In fact, even in good years, they live on the edge. So the manager looks after what is taking place with that property and makes sure the interest of the landowner is kept. The landowner may own several pieces of property in a number of villages. He's rich. He is very rich, and based on the exchange of goods, one was responsible to pay 100 jugs of oil, the other 100 barrels or whatever it is of wheat, and you parse that out into the value of the property. This guy was rich. And so the manager is looking after the landowner's property. The shareholders are barely making it. And it is a system that enriches the owner. Now, in this period of time, there were only two classes. There were rich and there were poor. There's really nothing in between. The manager was bumped up just a little. But he was tied with the rich man who owned the property. And the rich man, those that were rich in Palestine in this particular day, there were only two ways they got their riches. Only two. The first way was that they inherited their family, their father had done well and has passed on to the son. Probably most to the eldest son, a little bit to the uh, younger sons, but it's something like two-thirds to the older son, one-third to the rest of the kids. Now, the other way that they gained riches was that they cheated and they stole it. That they took advantage of those that were marginalized in the community, that they gained their riches from inappropriate relationships and dealings with people. So when you follow that back, if there are only two ways, one is inappropriate by stealing it, the other is you inherit it, well that father that he inherited from 
took advantage of the community. And so there was a strong, strong tension between the rich and the poor. Now in the story Jesus told in Matthew 25 of the talents, you know the story, don't you? The um, rich man is going off on a trip. He entrusts his riches, his monies to three of his servants. One he gives five, the second one two, the third one. When he comes back for an accounting, the one that got five says, here's ten. The one that got four, two says, here's four. The one that got one said, well, I know you're a hard man, and I buried it in the ground. And here it is, just the way you gave it to me, but with a little dirt, we can clean that up. Now, in the hearing of the people, these were people that Jesus was speaking to, his disciples and others. In that particular story, who might the hero be? To the common, ordinary people. Would it be the guy that took five and got ten? Or had four, two and got four? No, it was the one with one. Because he saved the money, gave it back just as he had received it, and he did not use it to scandalize the marginalized people of the community. It is in this capacity, this thinking, that we see this parable making its way. And so here's a simple story. You've heard it, you'll hear it different ways. Rich man gets a message from someone. We don't know who it is. It's just a message, it's hearsay. And he acts on the hearsay. He calls his manager, says, I'm going to fire you, but I want to see the books. We'll take care of that tomorrow. Then the manager says, you know, this is pretty tough. If he looks at my books, it might not be right. I don't want to dig ditches. I don't want to beg. I know what I'll do. And he calls the people that are owned. He says, sit down quickly. He says, make out a new bill. He says, how much do you owe? Is it 100? Make it 50. <clears throat> the sharecropper becomes complacent with what the manager is doing. The scripture points out just two people. There are much, much more than that. Just representative of what is there. And so, the exchange is made. He says, I'm doing this, and by doing this, I'll become a hero. And when I need a place to stay, there's lots of places I can stay. He's giving grace in a sense, but not full grace. And he is doing it to receive something in return. And so we find a number of things in this story that is interesting. It says opening that the manager squandered the property of the rich man. You catch that there? You know where we saw that last week? It was with the younger son going off in the far country. Same word is used. He squandered the inheritance that he had received. He squandered it. 
And so you can see the tie and the relationship between these two things. They go together. And he's continuing the story to the Pharisees as to what they should be concerned about. It is interesting in the story as you read down through the text after this was all said and done. Down in verse 8. That when the master found out what had taken place, he commended the dishonest manager because he acted shrewdly. Now that word is also found elsewhere in the Bible, but the most interesting one is in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's called the Septuagint. You might see it in notes with a Roman numeral recon, uh, uh, indication of it with an L and an X and an X. You might have seen that sometime. They needed to translate the Hebrew Bible and some Aramaic into Greek so the common people could learn and read it. Interesting, we still do that today. In the translation of Genesis, the word shrewdness and shrewd is used in Genesis chapter 3. It said that the snake was shrewd. Kind of an interesting parallel here. But here's the shrewdness of the snake that is there. You know, I wondered about him commending the manager. You know, it could be that old saying about honor among thieves. Wow, you did a good thing. But I think it's much more. And let me tell the story perhaps in another way. The rich man gets a message and he acts on heresy. He tells the manager, you'll be fired, but I want to see the books. The manager is concerned. And what he does is a gracious thing, at least from the perspective of the sharecroppers. The amount that they owed is reduced, and they're thinking, maybe now I will have a chance to get ahead, to get a little bit above the poverty line. Perhaps there is hope for me. The manager is doing it to make sure his future is secure, one way or the other. The owner comes down to the village. The people have received help. And might I suggest that not only was the manager a hero, but so was the owner. Because through the manager, he had done something very gracious. And they came and they honored him for the exchange that had taken place. There was hope. There was a future. This owner and this manager has benefited us. And so now the owner is kind of caught. He recognizes the shrewdness of his manager. But he also realizes he can't come back into the village and say, let's turn it back, that was wrong. 
it was 50 that you wrote the bill for, it is 100. You have to do that. It was 80 you wrote it for, it is 100. That is expected to you. He could not do that because of the honor system of the community that was in place. It would put him to shame if he turned that around. And so he commends the manager and perhaps never even fires him because that would look bad for him too. And as it comes to kind of a conclusion, everything is good. The owner benefits from the honor that he receives, honor that he'd never received, which is counted far greater than the riches that would have come from the property. The manager's future is secure, and the sharecroppers, they have just had a massive gift. So that's the story. How do you make sense of it? Well, Jesus adds a phrase, and this is difficult too. If you look at verse 9 on your sheet, and I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of dishonest wealth, so that when it is gone, they may welcome you into eternal homes. What in the world is that all about? I really don't know. And by the way, it's okay not to know something. You don't have to have an answer for every single concept and idea in Scripture. You're free to say, I don't know, I'm not sure. But when you take something like this, you need to put it in context with Scripture and with what Scripture is teaching. What is absolutely clear? I don't know about you, but for me, it is the cross of Jesus Christ and the redemptive work that took place that I am free from sin because of what Jesus did. That is absolutely clear for me. I can take a magnifying glass on a piece of cloth, and if you look at the center, the weave is there, beautifully seen as the threads come in and out of each other, forming something that is tight. But if I stay looking at the center and kind of glance to the edge of the glass, it becomes blurry. Have you noticed that before? Now, if I take the glass and I move it over here, that blurry spots becomes in focus and clear and understandable. For us as Christians, that understandable spot is Jesus Christ and Calvary's cross, his resurrection, ascension, and promise to come again. We have this hope because of what Jesus did. That is what is clear. Now, where do we see hope here? Let me point out a couple of little things. It says, and I tell you, make friends. In what we saw last week and this week, where do we see Jesus making friends? Look at the top of the page. Okay, it's with the tax collectors and the sinners. Make friends. These are the people that Jesus is making friends with. Those that are on the outside of what the good people think should not be a part of God's kingdom. 
people that should not be receiving the goodness and the grace of God. Make friends. Buy dishonest wealth. What is the wealth of the gospel? What is the commodity that Jesus and the gospel uses? What is the wealth of God in our behalf? Can I suggest that it is grace? Now, follow this through with me. Grace is a commodity that God gives to us. And we get it when we don't even deserve it. Is that right? It is what God's gift is for us and for all people. Oh, what good news that is. But dishonest wealth, how can grace be dishonest? Well, this is the issue that Pharisees were having, and we have today still. We had it as kids, you know? Uh, your brother, your sister got more than you did. How come they're getting more than I'm getting? You know, it could have happened in the story. How come, how come Joe got 50% of his oil off and I'm only getting 20% of my wheat? What did I do to deserve getting less? And we have this structure that we play with as to what is the value of the gift of God. And does a person deserve receiving this? And those that see people getting the full grace of Jesus Christ in their life say they got it by dishonest means. They're getting cheap grace. Have you heard that term before? That is often used of those that criticize the gifts that God brings to us. What wonderful gifts they are. Cheap grace. At the very core of the great controversy between Christ and Satan is the accusation that these people are mine because they have turned against you. Why are you letting them be set free? It's not fair. And so the grace that God gives is dishonest because we do not deserve it. It is God's great gift for us. And what a gift it is. And so here in the story, we see the cross. And by taking the gift in this shrewd way, so to say, we're welcomed into eternal homes. In this is a praise of the child, children of this world over against the children of grace, the children of light. And what I read in this is something I think rather unique. If a child of the world can do this to secure his future, what are you doing to give the grace of God to the community of people 
that are somewhat disenfranchised from the things of God so that they can have a place in the kingdom. If they will use dishonesty to feather their own future, how much more that you, as God's people, must use the grace of God to bring people to the understanding of things eternal. It is not only an assurance of God's grace, but it is a call for us to be messengers of that grace by whatever means we can to allow people to know that they are loved, they are searched for, they are valuable to God, and there is hope. As I was coming to church this morning, there was a car in front of me, had a vanity plate. Have you ever looked at these vanity plates? You try to figure out what they're meaning and saying. This wasn't too bad. Some of them are totally strange. But this one was grace. G-R-A-C-E. And then the letters R-X. My initial thinking was, here is a lady who owns a car, is driving the car. Her name is Grace. And she's a pharmacist. <laughs> people like to advertise who they are. I see people with their degree on their MD, uh, uh, JD, DDS, you know, whatever it is. It's somehow with their initials on a license plate. They like the glamour uh, that is there. But in view of our scripture today, I read it differently. I read it grace. And Rx, the antidote for our world. Jesus came, and in Calvary's cross, and only there, you and I have hope. The devil may say that it was obtained by dishonest grace, dishonest means, but God gives us the kingdom as God's people. Take the kingdom and live for him.